Hello, race fans. Welcome to the Pittsburgh Racing Now podcast. I am your host, Scott Stiller. Thanks for finding us. Coming up on this week's podcast are our special guests, sprint car driver Carl Bowser and his wife, Kristen Schwartzlander of Dirty Mouth Communications. We'll briefly recap the wild finish to the Daytona 500, and we'll also take a look at some of the news making headlines this week. We'll start with that wild finish to the Daytona 500 where Ryan Newman was leading, coming off at turn four, headed for the checkered flag with a hard-charging Ryan Blaney behind him. Blaney and Newman made contact, sending Newman into the wall. Newman's car ricocheted off the wall into the path of an oncoming Corey LaJoy, who struck the driver's side of Newman's car, sending it barrel rolling down the front stretch. While that was happening, Denny Hamlin ended up passing Blaney to pick up the wind, his second 500 in a row and third overall. It took emergency crews nearly 15 minutes to extricate Newman from his mangled race car. He was immediately taken to Halifax Medical Center, where he was treated and thankfully released a couple of days later. NASCAR dodged a bullet on this one, and ironically, Newman has been one of the most vocal critics of stock cars getting airborne. NASCAR man wrote a great article on RacingReference.com detailing the accidents, and there were some great quotes from Newman that directly came from Newman after the various accidents that are referenced in the article. He has not spoken publicly after the Daytona accident. Dale Jr. did on his download, and he criticized the huge spoiler on the back of the current stock car because it gives trailing cars such a run that the leader, Newman in this case, had no choice but to block. I agree with Dale Jr. The huge spoiler doesn't let the leading car get away either because all of the drag that it creates. I also think drivers need to stop with so much bumper tag. I realize there is this rubbing is racing mentality in NASCAR, but keep this in mind. Stick your hand out the window when you're going down the highway, and that'll give you an idea of what aerodynamic lift is like. And think about it. At 55 miles an hour, imagine what it's like at speeds over 200 miles an hour. So my main take is we don't need to be laying the bumper to someone at those speeds. Martinsville, Bristol, different story. We also have some IndyCar news this week. James Hinchcliffe is joining Andretti Autosport for three races. The GMR Grand Prix on the road course at Indianapolis Motor Speedway. The Indianapolis 500 and the Texas 600 in June. Also, former IndyCar driver Robbie Buell is starting a new team, and he's partnering up with a Steelers minority owner, Robert Citrone, to do it. I've reached out to Buell Autosport to find out more. Look for an in-depth story coming up in the future on PittsburghRacingNow.com. Shifting gears to local racing, we're starting to get some news from local teams about their plans for 2020. So for all of the local race teams, tracks, promoters, if you have news you want to share, don't forget to email us at pghracingnow at gmail.com or hit us up on social media at pghracingnow on Twitter and Pittsburgh Racing Now on Facebook. So excited about this week's guests, Carl Bowser and Kristen Schwartzlander, because this is a unique opportunity to talk to a couple with a deep connection and investment in dirt track racing, plus a unique perspective as well. The interview contains some incredible information, so sit back and enjoy. 
Joining us on the Pittsburgh Racing Now podcast is Carl Bowser, driver of the 410 Sprint Car, the Wicked Cushion Turner's Ice Tea Ride, and Kristen Swartzlander from Dirty Mouth Communications, Wicked Cushion. And for those of you who aren't familiar, she's also Mrs. Carl Bowser. So we got a husband and wife team on tonight. Hey, thanks for joining us, guys. Hey, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. So, Carl, when did you first get into racing? When did you first kind of get the bug? I kind of first got the bug probably um, a lot later in life than most guys. I was probably 12 or 13 when uh, when I started going to Lernerville just as, as a kid watching. I didn't do I didn't do the go kart deal. I, my first uh, experience with racing was just going to Lernerville and watching. And and uh, my first experience working on race cars I actually worked on Ralph Fithiller's 410 sprint car at Lernerville. So that was kind of my first. What got me hooked was just watching and then getting to work on them. So prior to that, most people, as, as you mentioned, come up through the ranks. So when did you get your first opportunity to climb into one? So I started uh, racing. Uh, I ran a micro sprint when I was uh, 16 years old. Did that for just about a year. Um, raced a few times the second year, but um, raced after a year and then went and uh, we bought a uh, 410 car to run Lernerville. So it was, was kind of right into sprint cars a little bit and the micro stuff. Like I said, we ran that for a year, and that was we did really well. Uh, I think I went won uh, nine races that first season, and that was kind of like, all right, well, now what's next? And what's next was a 410 car, and that's where we started there in uh, 2005, running 410 wing cars. So you set the bar pretty high out of the gate. Yeah, set the bar really high. Um, set the bar high, and then I felt like um, we just kind of started running Lernerville, and that's really all – until like 2009, 2010, that's all we did. Um, so as, you know, being 18 and started running a wing car, you know, 410 car, I only ran, you know, whatever Lernerville race. That was pretty much it for the first, you know, five years or so racing. So it was, you know, 15, 18 races a year. So it wasn't really until 2009, 2010 to when I started uh, taking it more seriously. And I started dating Kristen in 2010 and, and kind of just being around her family kind of really encouraged me to try and take the next step and, and race more. Kristen, you grew up a little bit around the sport, obviously. So walk us through how you got involved and how it's kind of grown from there. Sure. Um, yeah, I was raised in it. Um, uh, my generation is fourth generation. So my great grandfather, Neil raced, uh, my grandfather, Melvin raced, and then my Uncle Brian um, obviously still races in the, the big block modified division. And my parents have a machine shop that they've had since I was about six years old. So um, I grew up in that environment. I really liked, you know, seeing how things were made and things, seeing how things work. And Brian's shop has always been housed up there. So I got to really see how, you know, the mechanics of everything worked and, and get involved in that. And then um, in 2004, I think I was 18, um, my family bought a speed shop. So we got a lot more involved. We were already making parts for like Tio and Vicknell and some modified um, manufacturers. So we started selling those parts out of the store and I started doing trackside service and really getting involved on that level. Um, and that's how Carl and I met, um, obviously. But uh yeah, that's kind of where I started. I went to Columbia then um, as an engineer to get my engineering degree and thinking I would work on race cars, but I got really involved in marketing while I was at Columbia. So, you know, I kind of went in that direction. 
So how did you, you guys at that point in time, when did you decide, okay, we can put both of our vocations together and kind of make this work as a business? And that's an interesting question. Carl had already been working with my dad through Precise. And then after college, I went to the 49ers and um, did PR there. I had done some PR at the Arena Football League. And when I went to the 49ers, I started doing the marketing actually for their sponsorship division and their um, off the field community relations, all of those aspects. So then when I moved back to Pittsburgh and um, Carl and I started dating, we saw the same opportunity that we're seeing right now in racing where there's just a wide open playing field for people who want to do marketing well. There's a lot of talented drivers and there's a lot of opportunities like in social media, in marketing. There's a lot of things that people aren't doing yet or aren't doing well or could be doing better that we thought that we could do. So, um, you know, if he could race more and if we could apply some of the things that I'd learned in professional sports to his team, that that would make a good match. So that's about 2010, 2011, we started kind of applying some of those things. And Carl, can you actually quantify the difference that's made in your program? Oh, 100%. Since Chris and I've been together, I mean, she's kind of really shown me how, you know, you can run racing like a business. I mean, we've won 35 races, which is a lot. I think I have 40 career wins. So, I mean, I was, it was purely a hobby, purely a one night a week thing when I started. When you're surrounded by everybody that that's what they want to do is just race one night a week. That's all you do. You know, and, and I got to meet Kristen and, and her dad. And, you know, a lot of people don't know, but her dad was a big supporter of mine long before we were even together, you know, and, and helping me with, with parts and telling, you know, just working on the car and, and just kind of teach me, you know, but then we got together and it was really a, you know, we can turn this into a business. She had a lot of ideas, you know, obviously once we started dating and then got married, you know, we were the ones, you know, paying all, almost all the bills. So it was, it was kind of had to figure out how to run it. So let's back up a little bit and talk a little bit about, you talked about how you have 40 career wins. When did you start, you know, after you went to the 410 and you ran a couple of races, when did you say like, you know, I can do this, I can win races doing this, and I can be the guy to beat out on the track? I mean, I, I would say the competitor in me it was right away. You know, I feel like I'm one of the last guys you know, racing today, you know, as far as age-wise, that, that kind of grew up in the time of the Ed Lynch Juniors and, and Bob Felmley and Brian Ellenberger, you know, guys that, you know, are Hall of Fame guys that were still racing every week. So they were, they were big money teams and they were guys that had raced for 20 years and they were tough. I mean, I, mean, I can still remember my first top 10 and, and it didn't happen until, you know, the middle of the season, my rookie year. And it was, I was through the roof to run in the top 10. I know my rookie year, I led some races at the end of the year, which was, was huge. So yeah, probably, probably that rookie year, the, just the competitor in me was, I always felt like I was competitive. I just had to learn, you know, what to do. That learning curve for some people, it seems to come quick. It sounds like for you, it did for others. It, it just takes laps and laps and laps and laps. So how can you translate what your experience is to some of the young guys that are coming up because it's it's not as easy as it is for some as it is for others obviously oh yeah for sure I kind of uh I feel like I I was very lucky and from probably for you know two or three years though even even when I started racing my micro sprint I still worked on 
um, Ralph Spithaler's 410 car, you know, every week at Lernerville and every Saturday at Mercer. Basically, as soon as I got my driver's license, I would, you know, drive to drive to his shop and work on the car in the week and, and go with them on the weekend. So I had a very good uh, understanding with, you know, how to work on the car uh, long before I ever got to sit in it. And then I was fortunate enough when, when I got started racing, Gary Christ, who, who races now, he had actually, him and his dad, they were actually retiring and then Gary was going to be done driving. So I bought his first car and engine and, and Gary and his dad, Butch, came and worked on it. So, I mean, I, I was lucky enough to have guys like Ralph Spithaler and, and Gary and Butch Christ to learn on and, and guys that have been around sprint cars for years and years to kind of help direct me and, and just kind of show me the, the simple things I think a lot of people screw up or, or a lot of things, truthfully, that money can't buy, and that's just the experience they had. It's interesting in racing where in most competitive sports, you don't get help from your competitors. Yet racing is a little bit different, and you touched on it right there when you were saying, you know, when you were coming up through the ranks, the guys were helping you and kind of shepherding and showing you the way, so to speak. And I find that very unique in racing. When you were getting into racing, did you expect that to happen, or did you see that when you were working with Ralph? And did you think, wow, you know, this is a little bit unique to a competitive sport? Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, I know when I was working with Ralph and, you know, was a young kid, if someone had a car that came in and, you know, was wrecked, you jumped in to help just, just to learn or just to help them because that's what they would do for you. So, yeah, I definitely see that and you see that, you know, you can, you know, a lot of stuff on the local level I feel like is, is a lot of guys doing it for a hobby. So, you know, it might not be as cutthroat as, as a professional, you know, professional racing or, or, you know, higher up in the ranks. But yeah, you know, it's just everybody, uh, wants to help because you've been in that situation before and then people have helped you. That's invaluable, I think, in sport. And I think that's something that should be capitalized a little bit more on in terms of social media and things of that because I think it's something that's really unique to racing. In an NFL game, you only have one other team to beat. But in racing, you might have 20 or 30 guys at the track that you have to beat on a particular night Yet, if you have some sort of trouble, Jack Soderman brought it up a couple of weeks ago on the podcast. Cy Lynch said the same thing. He said, we want to beat guys when they're at their best, not when they have an issue. Oh, yeah, 100%. You're only as good against as the guys you race against are. So, I mean, yeah, you could uh, show up and win a race at Lernerville if there's 10 cars there. But, you know, if it's, if it's one or two good cars and, and 10 guys that it's their first year on the racetrack, you, you haven't really done anything. So you, you really, uh, when those guys show up or, you know, or any team in general, but, you know, you, you want the best uh, cars on the racetrack all the time. And I think um, we found, too, like going up and down the road with the All-Star Series, what, two years ago now, I mean, you just find out really quickly how small of a community, you know, the racing community is. And the guys that are working on one car might be on another car the next week and they might be a driver the next week. And when they retire, they might come back and be a crew chief. It's just, it's such a small world. And I think it's um, beneficial for younger drivers to learn that really quickly. You know, you all chip in and help each other out and, you know, you're going to see that guy every week, probably for the next, you know, 50 years of your life. So it's really beneficial. You never know, you know, what's going to happen. So we, we found that even at a higher competitive level, that world is still so small um, and so tight knit. Um, it's really unique to the sport. 
When you look back on last year, Carl, how would you sum up the year that you had? I would say a lot of highs and lows, you know, probably average. You know, I know we kind of started out bad. We, we heard an engine, we blew an engine up early in the year um, and then and then actually destroyed a car, you know, kind of in the midway point. So it really financially set us back, you know, and we kind of got things rolling towards the end of the year. But, you know, it was it was definitely some highs and lows. But, you know, the highs were, you know, winning you know, every race we won was a special race or, you know, a race paid a lot more money. So that was all good. Um, but it, but it came with some, some pretty low lows as well. You know, it's interesting how, when a setback happens, how it really tests your fortitude and your metal. And in racing, if you can take care of your equipment, you're that much farther ahead of the game. And that a lot of taking care of your equipment comes down to respect on the racetrack from your fellow competitors, and uh, I don't necessarily see it a whole lot in the 410s, but you see it in some of the other divisions where there's a little bit of a lack of respect for the fellow competitors. You know, there's a couple of guys out there. If I could give out a golden bowling ball award, uh, I know who would be the first candidate, let's say. Uh, I, I would agree with that. Uh, I mean, I would say there's some guys in the 410s that are the same that, that don't really have, you know, respect or maybe respect for other people's equipment or even respect for equipment in general. Yeah, there, there definitely is a lot of that. And, you know, we kind of always joke, you, you can tell uh, sometimes maybe who, who works uh, all week to pay the bills and then who, who doesn't have to uh, maybe necessarily worry about paying the bills or, you know, they got, they got a couple other cars sitting at home or a couple other engines where it's not a, not a big deal. So there, there definitely is a lot of that. You know, I think I definitely grew up racing in an area where, or in an era where, you know, there was guys where you just didn't pull a lot of things. I mean, I wouldn't, I couldn't imagine uh, pulling some of the moves that people pull today on, on an Ed Lynch Jr. or, uh, or a Bob Thelmley or a Rod George, you know, guys that they wouldn't care. They'd take you to the next corner and they'd take all your equipment and ball it up. And, and it, you know, wasn't any, any skin off their back, you know, they weren't going to put up with it. So maybe there should be more of that sometimes. I don't know. It may, may, might make it more exciting for the fans, but, there's uh, definitely two sides to that. It seems to me like the guys that work on their cars themselves or put all the hours in have that kind of respect, and the guys that don't spend as much time working on the car, it seems like that's kind of where the where the line is drawn, so to speak. Yeah, I would agree with that. That's uh, yeah. I mean, I don't even know. That's probably the best way to put it. You know, there's there's lots of guys. Uh, that work really hard on their stuff. There's lots of guys that work really hard on their equipment that maybe have never won a race or will, or will ever win a race. You know, a guy like uh, Bill Kiley, who, you know, probably has more races at Lernerville than, than anybody in the pit. You know, he goes there every week. He, he always shows up and his, his car runs and, and, you know, he's working on it, but uh, you know, he might never win a race, but there's, there's definitely a, a, a line there or a gap. Let's take a look at 2020. Can you talk a little bit about what your plans are? Do you have them set yet? Or are you still in the formulating what your game plan is for the year? We're going to run uh, basically like a uh, regional, like non-point chasing schedule. We're going to race local enough to support all of our fans that support us and to, and to support all of our sponsors that, uh, that are local sponsors. So, you know, we have a lot of opportunities to do that this year, which is, which is really good. So we're going to do that. 
for our sponsors and our fans. And, and then we're still going to get to uh, some big regional races, some races that we want to go to, uh, you know, outside of the region and, and some higher paying shows that, that we can kind of get onto a, a national level and, and see where we stack up. All of your sponsors coming back, you might as well rattle them off so we can get them the publicity they deserve. We're still uh, kind of finishing all that up, kind of dotting some T's and crossing some I's on, on all those. But, you know, the, the same sponsors that we've had for a long time, you know, have supported uh, Chris and I and our, our dreams and our team for a long time. You know, you know, Dirty Mouth Communications, obviously, Turner's Ice Tea has been with us for a long time. And, and they're a big reason of a lot of the uh, local shows that we go to is, is because of Turner's. And, and you know, it's, it's a deal where people can stop on the way and buy Turner's, you know, at the gas station on the way to the racetrack or on the way home. So, you know, they've been a big supporter for a long time. Wicked Cushion. Uh, Reese's Body Shop, Ringer's Pet Dog Training, Precise Tool and Die, Precise Racing, uh, Rosencrantz Lawn Care, just a uh, list goes on and on of, of good people that want to help us and support us, and I hope I hit them all. Kristen's usually the, the one that uh, has to poke me in the side if I miss somebody, so I didn't get that, so I, I think I got them all. I tease all the drivers when I interview them. I said, if you want lessons on how to get all your sponsors in, just watch what Kevin Harvick does at the end of a race. He doesn't even a- answer the question that the reporter asked him. He goes, well, you know, I couldn't have done it without, and he just rattles off all 10 of his sponsors <laughs> real fast, and if he remembers the question, then he answers it. <laughs> Oh, that's, yeah, that's smart. That's, uh, it's definitely what makes the sport goes around, go around, you know, um, it does take a lot of money to run one of these cars. Um, and, and it takes a lot of good people that, that believe in the team that they're shows to support for sure. So what do you guys find when you go and I'm not going to ask you how you pitch somebody, but give me a little window into when you talk to a potential sponsor about why they should get involved in local racing and get involved with your team in particular? To be honest with you, what we start out is from their goals. So we, what are their goals as a company? Is it to sell IT? Is it to hire employees? Is it to retain their employees? Is it um, a community relations effect? What, what are they looking at or for on their end? And then we can match that up with our assets. So the, there's a lot of different ways that we can serve them as a team. It just depends on their goals. So that's kind of how we approach it. And that's how we've found success, I think, on that level. And I've you know, found success for tracks and sanctioning bodies and our team and other teams in that way. It's, you know, we might not always have the answer for that company. And, and we, we want long-term partners. And that's why we've we have partners that have stayed with us a long time is because we come at it from the approach that what are, what are your goals and how do we match them up? So we have a pretty good idea of who our fan base is in particular. We have a a good idea of who the fan base in general is for each different kind of goal that a company might have. We can match it up to, you know, a way of serving them, whether that's social media, whether that's eyes in the car and events, you know, at the track or at their facility, Um, There's a lot of different ways that we can come at whatever their need is for their business. How do you quantify what you bring to the table? There's different ways to quantify depending on, you know, what you want to look at. If you're looking to recruit employees, you know, we can quantify, you know, we'll bring this many job applicants or this many downloads to your website or, you know, this many hits on your social media. We have a proven track record of being able to deliver results. So we have a pretty good idea when we talk to a company of, you know, what's realistic and, you know, what their ROI can be 
on the promotion that they're looking for. And then I know, you know, because we own our own marketing agency, you know, we can do some unique things. We can work a lot more on the fly than most teams can. And, you know, we've kind of taken that to our track clients as well. You know, they have, if they have 15 different events, they can have 15 different sponsors. And we've kind of, you know, applied that approach to our car with, you know, Wiki Cushion. Um, you know, part of the idea of that uh, platform is that it is a platform for marketing and, you know, it can come off the car for, you know, one night deals or, you know, we worked um, with Craig Kinzer last year with Profile, um, is like a weight loss um, clinic that they actually just opened one up in Westford. But um, we did like a six night deal with Craig Kinzer and we could, you know, track um, how many new clients that we brought them and uh, a d- bunch of different quantifiable data. Um, obviously, you know, when, with the internet, you can bring a lot of quantifiable data on that level. So if that makes sense. Tell me a little bit about Dirty Mouth Communications and how you got started with that and how you worked it together with your team and then what exactly you guys do. I started Dirty Mouth in 2013. So like I was saying earlier, my degree is in engineering, but um, I really wanted some sort of applied knowledge. So I went to work for the Arena Football League while I lived in New York on their statistics um, for both their marketing and you know on the field plays. So I worked for them for a couple of years and then they referred me to the 49ers. So I went there and worked there for their marketing. And I came back here and worked for an ad agency. And I just, everywhere I went, I saw all of these, you know, promotions and tactics and assets that I thought, like, imagine if you could take this to a race team. Nobody's doing this in racing, especially dirt track racing. I mean, there's just so many opportunities, but, and, and we find this, you know, in our own team, most people are just, we just want to win races, you know, we're just focused on being in the shop and, and getting a better race car. So most of us don't have time to look at that. But I, you know, from the outside, looking in, thought, what if you could just apply all of these principles to dirt track racing? So um, that's when I started Dirty Mouse um, after I worked at Mercer Raceway as a promoter, I think in 2011-2012. We work a lot with track. Um, especially, but we work with drivers, we work with sanctioning bodies, and we kind of help them with any area of their marketing um, that needs finesse. So um, a lot of what we do is social media, social media promotions for tracks is, I mean, there's just a huge opportunity there. Um, And, you know, if you look at the demographics of dirt track racing, they're on Facebook, they're on Twitter. And now they're starting to be on Instagram. So we see um, a lot of opportunities there. So through Dairy Mouth, we um, we will train drivers. We will train um, tracks. We will train sanctioning bodies. We will work with sponsors to help them get the most out of um, their programs. When you do something like that, it, it, it kind of opens your eyes. Because I know just rolling out the website last year and getting in front of people talking about what's happening in Western Pennsylvania dirt track racing. It's such an underserved market. And, you know, being a media member, I'm going to throw the blame on ourselves because it's so much of it is about Steelers, Pirates, and Penguins. Then when you throw Pitt and the other universities in, local racing gets next to no coverage. So I'm finding that a lot of people, they have a perception about it, but it's not necessarily reality. Right. And I, I think that's a great point. So if, if we assume that you're 
um, hypothesis is right is that it's not getting enough media coverage. And then if you look at the tens of thousands of people that are involved in dirt track racing, they've got to be even more engaged on their own to be involved. So to get their information, they have to actively go find it. They just can't turn on the news and see like the Steelers or the Penguins or the Pirates. So I think it just goes to show how engaged you know, grassroots racing fans are and what an opportunity that is for businesses to get in front of them because we are, we have such a rabid fan base and invested fan base that has to actively, um, you know, take action to find out about their favorite drivers and tracks and racing. So I think that just goes to show the opportunity. The opportunity is huge and and it's amazing. I go to the track and I see some of the cars that, that have no sponsorship on them. And I'm thinking there's got to be someone that you know that has something that they can either sell or something that they're trying to get their message out there. So for some of these guys that are sitting at home that maybe not have top flight equipment, what advice could you give them on how they can take control of their own destiny? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great point. Um, Carl and I, I joke all the time because like, I just want to go and open hug half of these drivers and tell them like they have something that they can sell. I mean, a lot of drivers just don't realize, you know, the value that they, they might not have as big of an audience as a, you know, Donnie shot. Um, but that doesn't mean they don't have people that, you know, care about what they do and, you know, could be engaged and benefit from that. So I think, you know, for them to harness it, I think the first thing you have to look at is, you know, you got to kind of throw away the old, you know, this size logo for this dollar amount um, attitude and think about, okay, what what's unique to me that I can offer to a company? And then think about what do you have? You have your car, you have your suit, you have, you know, the trailer, obviously, but maybe, um, you know, maybe your profession is unique to you. Maybe um, your kids, maybe, you know, where you're located, maybe your flexible schedule. I mean, everybody's got something that makes them a little bit different and that can be an asset to a company um, to help them, you know, reach their goals. So just thinking about what you could offer, I think is, is the best way to start. And that's no matter who, how big of an athlete I've worked with, that's always where we start. It doesn't matter if you have a million social media followers, that might not be your unique, you know, proposition. So just thinking about what makes you different um, and then getting rid of that attitude of, of the dollars for logos. But I do, you know, I feel badly a lot of times for racers that are trying to go, you know, get sponsorship because of the old, you know, the, there's a lot of, uh, you know, that old attitude that has kind of ruined a lot of companies on sponsorship that think it's just like throwing money away. So there is a lot of educating that we have to do that, you know, companies don't know about how valuable dirt track racing is in particular. And there's, there's a lot of opportunity, like we said. Um, so you have to kind of bring companies up to speed and that can be hard. So um, don't be too hard on yourself. So Carl, when you have to step out of the car and you're not working on the car, when you have to go to down to something like the world of wheels and Put yourself out there in front of all the fans. How much do you enjoy doing that? And how much do you like to engage? Because racing is one of those sports where you can watch it on TV all you want. But if you truly want to get the experience, you have to go to the track. And most people that I've taken to the track, once they go, they go back. 
Oh, for sure. And I mean, I, I, you know, like, like doing the world of wheels or, you know, every year we do the, uh, the Turner's, uh, heart to heart picnic, you know, with children's hospital. I love that stuff. You know, you, you get to go out and you get to meet people or you get to just meet people that might not even be a fan of me, just race fan in general. You know, the world of wheels show this a uh, couple weeks ago here was a, was a great example of that. You know, you just get to meet people that love racing and it doesn't have to be dirt racing. It doesn't have to be sprint car racing. You just get to talk to them and they get to, you know, really engage with them or, you know, hear their stories of their favorite race or, you know, whatever it may be. Um, and just get to talk to them. You know, that's definitely one of my uh, favorite things about the year and, and working with different sponsors we have is, is doing those events where you get to go, um, you know, go to a local gas station and, and, you know, support one of your sponsors or, or your hand stuff out and just get to talk to people is, you know, every, everybody has that, that one, you know, like you said, that one racing thing where they, maybe their first time at the racetrack or the first time they got to watch, uh, you know, a legend race something, you know, it, it, they all have a story. That's a great point. You have a great story. You, uh, the two of you have a great story about how you're making it work together and how you're taking that business approach to what you're doing. I think one of the cool things about local racing and for folks that want to go check it out is millennials get a bad rap for their you know lack of attention span that people always say but with dirt racing one of the coolest things i like about it is you know you got a 15 or a 10 lap feature seven lap you know heat race so it's a lot of quick action with breaks in between so it it really is nothing like some of the racing that you see on TV, like NASCAR or sports cars, or even an IndyCar race that's two or three hours long. Oh, I completely agree. Um, you know, I, I always tell someone if, if I'm meeting someone new that, uh, you know, has never been, you can go to a dirt race. There's free parking when you get there. Um, and, and usually, you know, you can, you can go sit in the stands or you can go and buy a pit pass and, and literally walk up and almost touch other cars or, you know, if, if you have kids and you bring them to our race car, I'll let you, the kids sit in it and, you know, take a picture and just see it up close where, you know, that, that might not be always the aspects of, of other uh, entertainment options that they have. So, yeah, that's, that's definitely a lot. And, and, and I think a lot of tracks, you know, hopefully are realizing that and they're, they're, uh, they're shortening their programs up where you're not there for six or seven hours. You know, the racing can kind of start and end in, in that two to three hour window. Um, so it, it's definitely a lot of opportunity there. Definitely a lot of racetracks have to adapt to that, you know, like same as the racers have to adapt to, to changing times. But, you know, there's there's definitely a ton of opportunity for, for fans to be close to that kind of stuff. So both of you guys put your sales hat on. Why should somebody that listens to the podcast, it just might be a casual sports fan that's never been to Lernerville, never been to Mercer, never been to Sharon, PPMS. Why should they take a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and go to the racetrack and check it out? I think you um, you get to see a lot of uh, fast cars with loud engines, and, and it's, you know, it's definitely a very um, visual sport, you know, to watch everything, but it's a lot of things that you can walk right up and, and get close to cars running and see guys, you know, them being worked on. And, um, you know, I know Sharon this year is going to have, like, a uh, an infield thing. You get probably the first racetrack in the area that you're going to be able to go and watch from the infield so it's a totally different perspective of of you know seeing race cars on the racetrack i think from like a oh someone who is raised in racing's perspective it's just such a great opportunity to bring your whole family you know everyone goes and has fun you know where everybody is 
you can sit and have like, you know, your dinner and your drinks and you pick out a race car and you cheer for it. And maybe you don't know that guy right now, but the great opportunity of today's racing is, you know, with social media, you can't sit there and look inside that guy's helmet, but you can pull up his, you know, his Twitter, his Instagram or his Facebook. And, and then you get to learn about these people's life story. Um, you know, we all sacrifice so much and work so hard to get there. And I think it's a real cross section of America right now where we're all, you know, we have a dream and, you know, we're working really hard to build something. And I think most families can relate to that. And there's a lot of millennials that that's, you know, what they're working towards. So I think it's a really good example of, you know, if you work really hard at something, you can be successful at it and go have fun watching people do that. Talk a little bit about the Wicked Cushion platform and exactly what you do for them and and how it benefits the different entities that that touches. Wicked Cushion was founded a year or two ago um, by someone that had the exact same vision that we do. So um, he sees the opportunities and Matthew Henninger he saw the opportunities that we do in dirt track racing to um, connect companies to um, racers that can market successfully um, and show them, you know, what kind of audience um, engagement that they can have. And at a great value, um, it racing, the, the cost of advertising and racing, it's just such a huge ROI for what you can do for a company. So he started with cushion and um, I'm a partner in that venture and, uh, you know, we've engaged with a lot of different teams across the country. And um, I shouldn't say just teams, teams, tracks, sanctioning bodies. And he has, um, you know, a big interest in iRacing. So um, that's a very large part of the platform. But um, that's the objective of the Wicked Cushion platform. And we've been lucky enough to be connected with that. And that allows us the flexibility to serve, you know, a variety of sponsors in a variety of different ways and have the, um, the pull of that platform, um, behind us. So, and then there's also, you know, some tangible products like the wicked energy and, um, there's wicked relief, you know, CBD gum, um, wicked energy has a, you know, a gum that's been interesting, uh, you know, to fold into, um, the mix between t-shirts and that, and, uh, you know, other gear, the glasses, you know, um, what do you want to call them? Like, uh, you know dirt goggles and stuff like that all of those kind of products um help us pump money back into the platform to you know serve a bunch of different racers so um that's kind of the goal there you touched on something that some of the local racers i see some do and some don't when it comes to marketing themselves i see some guys have t-shirts and things of that nature and i see other drivers don't uh, that that's a golden opportunity to get ROI for your sponsors and to give yourself some additional publicity. And it doesn't cost a whole hell of a lot to make a couple t-shirts. Sometimes it's cost prohibitive. You know, if you don't have a designer or, you know, um, you know, if you don't want to buy the minimums, but I think it's a, a great way even for the smallest teams, even if you just do crew shirts, you know, or crew and family shirts, you know, it's free publicity, um, you know, it's free marketing for your sponsors. And, you know, now I think, um, you know, we're seeing like a lot of the graphic tees, the way they're being designed, you know, it's a t-shirt that you can wear to work or you're, you can wear out on a Friday night. So it's not just something that you wear to the racetrack anymore, just to show off who you like. So for sponsors, it, it gets a lot of, um, leverage, you know, 
So, Carl, how much do you get involved in the business side, or you just leave that to Kristen, and do you just t take care of the car, or how, how do you guys how do you guys divide up the duties? Well, I mean, I could sugarcoat it and say that I'm really involved in the business, and and I am to a certain degree, but um, the majority of the business is is all Kristen, and 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 she's the brain. She handles a lot of that. I handle the working on the race car, getting all that stuff ready. Um, you know, a big part of our our whole deal is the presentation of everything. You know, everything needs to be clean. You you, you can't um, have these partners and go to the racetrack and, and have things that are dirty or, you know, look rough. So, so I try to handle all of that. And, and, you know, we, we just try and, uh, you know, really talk every day about, you know, what our next step is and, and what our plan is and, you know, never really like what's going on this weekend. It's what's going on in two months. Got it. You're looking down the road, so to speak. So as you guys look down the road, what's the first thing on your schedule for getting the 2020 season kicked off? First thing on our schedule will be the Port Royal opener. First weekend in March here in just a couple of weeks. That's where we'll start. Um, we'll probably be at Port for those first uh, few weekends in March and, and early April there. Just kind of slowly get it. I know the first time that we've had uh, two beautiful race cars sitting in the shop all pretty much 100% ready to go. So uh, we'll work on both of those and, and try and get both of those ran, you know, to start the year here and, and then go from there. When you look at some of the bigger events you're trying to get to, uh, what are some of the things that you're eyeing up? Are you thinking about maybe like a place like Eldora or going down to the Charlotte dirt track, anything like that? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, we're, we're going down to Charlotte. We'll, we'll go back to the world finals this year. We're actually going to go to the, uh, the May uh, outlaw race that they have in the spring there, um, just gets more laps on the racetrack, you know, and then some of the bigger races, we, uh, we have a couple of them that we're kind of planning on. We, we don't, uh, hundred percent know that that's what we're going to do yet. So we're kind of playing, uh, playing things out as far as our engine program and where we're going to be, you know, and then kind of pick and choose, um, on what, what, what makes the most sense for us, um, as a team and what makes the most sense for our sponsors and on where we're going to be. When you go to some of those other races, do you have to, or are you, do you look for business or someone in that area who might want to jump on your car for a particular week? Do you guys, do you guys approach it that way or can you approach it that way? We can approach it that way. The only tricky thing with that is, you know, we have to look at events that we're going to be at that track more than once because of rain. Particularly, we joke about Bedford. Um, we've had people interested in coming on board with our car for Bedford Speedway, the all-star race, and it gets rained. I mean, we tried to race that seven years in a row and didn't get there. Um, so you kind of have to be a little bit cautious of that. But we do look at that, um, you know, if we're going to be like either in a repeat situation or if it's a large enough event, um, you know, like we'll do the Dirt Classic at Lincoln this year and it has a rain date. You know, so that's kind of the, some of the things that we try to keep in mind. But we also try to be really cognizant. I try on the business side. You know, one of my goals, I guess, on handling the business side of the race car is I don't want Carl to have to think about money or a lack of time or any sort of lack of resources on a race day because um, there have been times when we've been scraping things together. And I think he's been more worried about, you know, getting the car to the track or, you know, that kind of thing than racing. And that's, you know, that takes away from our program. So it's my goal that he doesn't have to worry about that kind of thing. So I try to be cognizant of not squeezing too much into a day because I'm always very tempted to 
you know, sell his afternoon to, uh, you know, a sponsor. And then he's got to turn around and get to the racetrack really quickly. You guys have both touched on social media a little bit. It can be a dual-edged sword because uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to, to Jack Soderman and he mentioned that one of the things he would like to see racers do more is not whine as much or not take shots at competitors or tracks on social media and accentuate the positive. I was wanted to get both of your feelings on how people use social media, what you guys try and do with your social media, and what do you think some of the tracks and sanctioning bodies could do better? Um, I mean, I can definitely speak to the, you know, the, the whining, um, you know, the complaining or the bashing of tracks. You know, it, it definitely is a double-edged sword. I definitely think you don't see your successful teams doing that. You'll have a guy that's maybe a, a backmarker that's going to complain or, or you know, a guy that should probably take it to the racetrack instead of taking it to social media. But there is a, a two-way street there where a lot of that is – I lost for words on – just a level of professionalism? Yeah, a level of professionalism would probably be the best way to say it. You have to be able to look at everything that you put out onto social media as something that if you're sitting down at a, at a table looking for a sponsor, they're going to look at that same thing. So you have to be able to explain it. You, you have to uh, be able to stand behind what you say. Uh, so there, there's definitely a level of that. Yeah, Kristen, Kristen's definitely the one in charge. Well, and I, I, think, I don't know that I'm in charge, but, but I think, you know, um, you know, there's a, a freedom of speech argument to be made. And I joke with um, one of our favorite clients, we talk about this all the time, yet, yes, you should be able to say anything you want to, but there's also consequences for the things that you say, you know, so I think social media gives you that opportunity to um, separate yourself. Um, you can have a unique personality and you can um, show what's different about your team and what's really positive about your team and your sport and your competitors and the track. But I think it also, you know, I like social media a lot for, you know, the marketing aspect. And I think it also, you know, it lends a level of accountability um, for tracks and teams and sponsors and sanctioning bodies. I think it just makes the environment such that we all have to rise to the next level of professionalism because everything can be put onto social media. I think it really, you know, makes us all step up our game a little bit. And I think that makes us all better if we use it in a positive way. That's the key. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Sorry. Oh, no, definitely use it in a positive way. And I think it's a fine line for drivers where you don't want to be the, you know, the cookie cutter interview, you know, you're going to tweet something at the end of the night and it's going to be very professional and you're just going to thank your sponsors. You know, so you, you can definitely have a personality, but it definitely has to be, I think, a, a positive outlook. You know, it can't, it can't always be complaining. You know, I, I laugh, I go to the racetrack, and the same guys that, uh, you know, want to put something negative out or bash a racetrack or, I don't know, we have this thing apparently in sprint car racing where these guys want to give uh, the track photographer the finger and then post those pictures on their Twitter. And then, you know, you go to the racetrack early and y'all stand around and, and those are the same guys that want to say, Oh, I can't find any sponsors. And it's like, well, I can draw a line here on why you can't find sponsors. Like uh, it doesn't take a lot to, to figure that out. So there's definitely a line that you need to learn, you know, on how to walk it. You know, I learned a long time ago when I was on television 
Once you say something, and radio, once you say something, you can't take it back. And the same thing with social media, same thing with a picture, video, doesn't matter. Once you've done it, it's out there. And now with the World Wide Web, it's out there forever. It's definitely a dangerous line because you're not only representing your brand, but you're also representing your sponsors. And that's all it can take to blow a deal or... That's all it could take to discourage a potential client from getting involved. No, I, I 100% agree. We've sat down with a, a few sponsors where they've they've had bad experiences or they've seen some things that they're just not interested, you know. And and, and they're big companies that you know we think could greatly benefit from you know sponsoring a, a car and you know kind of the dirt track, the grassroots racing side of things. But there's been someone along the way that has just flat ruined it for them or, you know, or, or where they're, they're not going to be involved. They'll, they'll do something else. So, uh, we've, we've definitely seen that. Um, and, and definitely, uh, it's something you always have to think about. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, not having like an NFL or, you know, NBA, whatever budgeting where you have like the, all I can think of is the word sanctioning body, but where you have a professional organization that you're a part of and that you're, you know, receiving like, you know, broadcast rights, all of that. We need to realize in dirt track racing that we're all intertwined. And so you kind of have to look at the bigger picture, even as a driver, even if you don't like that other driver. Are you hurting yourself by saying something negative? Are you hurting the industry, you know, as a whole? Because we we have to make our own industry. You know, we're building our own cars and, you know, we're racing against people that are working in the industry and reinvesting like we are you know, our own ecosystem. Um, so when you're hurting part of it, you're hurting all of it. So I think it's important to think about. Great point. How far up are you guys to get the 2020 season started? I'm so sick and tired of this weather, the cold, the snow. I am ready for some racing. Oh, we're ready. We were actually standing uh, standing in the driveway here in the shop today. You know, the sun was out. And it was like, man, it feels like we could be uh, on the racetrack tomorrow. So uh, we're, we're ready to go. Well, we wish you guys nothing but the best in 2020. We're looking forward to seeing you at the racetrack, and I can't thank either one of you enough for taking time out of your night tonight to talk with us. It's It means the world to me. Thank you for having us, and thank you for starting this podcast. We, um, you know, we're really enjoying what you're doing, and we're looking forward to seeing where it's going. I think um, there's a need for a lot of this media coverage in the sport and for telling people's stories. I think that's what makes our unique our sport so unique so we really appreciate you doing this yeah yeah 100 percent. you know uh we're, i know we both have uh listened to what you've been doing so uh thank you no thank you guys we appreciate it great stuff from carl and Kristen, and all kinds of information that can benefit racers tracks sanctioning bodies and anybody connected to the sport i can't thank them enough for taking time out of their busy schedules to talk And thanks to you for joining us, race fans. Don't forget to stay up to speed on all of the local racing news, as well as the latest from the world of NASCAR, IndyCar, and sports cars, all at PittsburghRacingNow.com. Any use of this podcast without the express written consent of Pittsburgh Racing Now is prohibited. Thanks for joining us, race fans. I'm Scott Stiller. Talk to you next week.